Hey, sexy listeners. Today's episode is about low sex and no sex relationships. If you're in a relationship where you would like more, hotter, or better sex, join us and find out the secret to creating a more erotic life. Hello, LA. I'm thrilled to announce that I'm now bi-coastal and not only offering intensives on the East Coast, but offering half-day, full-day, and even weekend intensives at my oceanfront office in Santa Monica. If you live on the West Coast and you want to deepen your intimacy with your partner or rediscover your connection as a couple or even reconnect to yourself, I'd love to help you on your journey. Space is limited, so book your appointment now. Go to drtammy.com or email me at drtammy at the trouble with sex.com. That's Dr. Tammy at the trouble with sex.com. Put your relationship first to make love last. Welcome to the trouble with sex, where we get up close and personal with leading experts to expose the naked truth about sex, love and relationships. I'm Dr. Tammy. I've had a lot of letters from listeners recently about a problem in their relationship that some of you might experience. And it's really kind of a wide range of listeners. So I wanted to share some of my experience as a couples and sex therapist and also talk to you about my book, Getting the Sex You Want, and answer some of your questions directly. So today we're going to talk about low sex and no sex and problem sex relationships. And what happens when you're in a relationship where one of you has desire for your partner and the other one, not so much? Or when there's what we call a desire discrepancy in the relationship, which means sometimes you're into it, sometimes you're not, but it never seems to be at the same time that your partner's into it. And it doesn't matter if you're gay, straight, young, old, or somewhere in between, it happens to everybody. You know, I was just reading a study that said that one in two young people today don't identify as 100% heterosexual. So we're going to talk about that too and how that applies, like how you identify and how you get off and what your fantasy life is like and how that works for you. And does that affect your desire and how you get aroused in your relationship? We're going to figure that out today. And then we're also going to talk about the P word, not penis. I know that's what you were thinking. We're going to talk about porn. And how does pornography affect desire in your relationship? So let's dig down into it today. And let me read you some of my letters from listeners and talk about what you can do if you feel like there's a desire discrepancy in your relationship. So my first letter that I want to share with you says, Dear Dr. Tammy, I've been married for 20 years and we used to have great sex when we first met. And today, we only have sex once every couple months. Can you help? I would love to answer this question. It has a lot to do with what I call the getting the sex you want discrepancy, which is basically what do you want, when do you want it, and how do you want it? So in my book, Getting the Sex You Want, I talk about the difference between desire and arousal. Desire is 
the state of mind where you want to have sex with somebody. And it could be yourself. It could be the other person. It could be someone you haven't met yet. But it's the turn-on feeling that you have. Arousal is actually the turn-on feeling that you feel in your body. So arousal is the ability to have sex. If you're a guy, it's an erectile capacity. If it's a woman, it's usually the capacity for orgasm or getting ready to have sex. And desire and arousal are two different things. You can have desire without being aroused. You can be aroused after you feel desire or before you feel desire. For a lot of women, whether you're gay or straight, Desire comes after arousal, not before. And so it's confusing because sometimes arousal is in response to a long lead time. It doesn't just happen because you say, oh, I think I, think I want to have sex. Sometimes a bunch of things have to happen. There's many levels of arousal before you get to that place where you go, oh, I think I have desire. I think I want to have sex with my partner. So, you know, I joke around sometimes and say, you know, if you want to have sex with your partner on Saturday, you have to start on Wednesday. And especially if you've been married for 20 years. If you are talking about getting to those levels of arousal where you feel desire, there's a whole bunch of things you got to do. One of them is getting in touch with what it is that turns you on and gets you to that place of arousal that a lot of times what we do is turn that power of arousal over to our partner. And when we don't feel desire or arousal, we think, well, there must be something wrong with our relationship, or I'm just not turned on by my partner anymore, or maybe I should just trade them in for someone else because obviously this isn't working. And that may or may not be true, but we are responsible for our own turn on. And especially as women, I think that's really key. Women should be in charge of their own eroticism. And I think that's super important when we talk about desire and arousal, but also to teach yourself what it is that you need in order to be turned on. So in this letter from a listener where they've been married for 20 years, sex has sort of declined to every couple months. The first thing I would ask is, how often do you want to have sex? What is an okay amount of sex for you or a type of sex? Or what are you considering sex? Because sex is different for everybody. For you, it might be penis and vagina intercourse. For someone else, it might be an orgasm. For someone else, it might be being naked together. And everybody has a sort of different definition. Now, we think traditionally of intercourse, but if you're two women, that might not be how you define the ultimate act of your sexuality. It could be different if you are define yourself in a different gender. The idea of sex for you is ultimately expressed in however you feel empowered sexually. What is sexually rewarding for you and how often do you want it? So one of the first things I ask a couple when they come into my office is, when was the last time you had sex and how was it? Sexless marriage and low sex marriage or low desire marriage is defined by sex not as often as you want it and sex less than every couple of months. So we don't have a specific number or a specific amount of sex that defines a sexless or low sex or no sex marriage or relationship or committed partnership. But we do know that it's defined by less sex than you want and a feeling of longing 
and anticipation and missing it. When you don't have sex for a long time, you kind of turn off those sexual hormones and brain chemicals and you stop wanting sex. You know, sex is the best aphrodisiac. So the more sex you have, the more sex you want. When you stop having sex, you can turn it off. You can sort of put away that erotic desire and say, you know what, I'll take that out when the kids grow up or I'll take it out when I have a new partner or when I lose weight or when we move to a new house or, you know, when I feel better about myself or when I'm not as angry at my partner. You know, there's a lot of reasons that people shut down their sexuality. And so there's also a lot of ways to get it back. You know, some of the reasons that people shut off their sexual desire, and I don't know what's going on with you, 20-year guy or woman who wrote, we haven't had sex for 20 years. But one of the reasons is because it's really hard to climb over a pile of resentment in the middle of the bed. So one of the reasons is relational. So what's going on in your relationship after 20 years? Are you arguing a lot? Are you stuffing a lot of resentment? Do you not talk through your stuff? Do you have a lot of things that have piled up between you that you can't resolve? You know, some people need to feel connected in order to have sex, and other people have sex in order to feel connected. And sometimes you're married to each other. Then that leads to a total shutdown. So do you need to connect to your partner? Do you need to talk? Do you need to work through stuff? Do you need to go to couples therapy? What do you need in order to heal your relationship in order to get back to that sexual place that you miss so badly. Number two, where are you in your developmental phase of your relationship? You know, we all go through different developmental phases. So I'll tell you what they are, and you can tell me where you're at. So number one is the attraction phase, like when you first meet someone and you're like, I'm kind of hot for that person. You feel attracted to something about them. Like most people have some kind of sexual attraction in the beginning, but not everybody. You know, sometimes you're attracted to their intellectual stimulation or you think they're funny or you like what they do for a living or, you know, my husband is a musician. He played a song for me and I was like, oh, no, this is it. I really didn't want to get married again. He's my second husband. And he played that song for me and I was like, oh, I'm going to kill him. It was so sexy, and that's really what sort of put me over the edge and attracted me to him. And for other people, it's the—that someone can lift a heavy object. For other people, it's seeing them in a certain outfit. For other people, it's the first kiss. For other people, it's like a long conversation and really appreciating who they are as a person. Um, I have a friend who learned to meditate with her current partner, and she feels like she had just had a spiritual connection with this person, and that's what made her fall in love. So if you think about the attraction that you have to someone when you first meet, a lot of that attraction is in the beginning, before you actually know each other, there's a space in between you, and that's where the attraction happens. It's in the curiosity and the longing for each other happens in that space. Attraction happens when you don't know someone, in the curiosity of getting to know someone. You know, we want something we don't have. We want something over there. When it's sitting next to us on the couch every night, not so much. And so in that initial phase of attraction, that's when the desire and the longing and the hots for someone kicks in. And fantasy is created when you don't have something 
and you can imagine, using your imagination, what it would be like. And a lot of our Kickstarter in our, our sexuality happens during fantasy. So what was your initial attraction to your partner? Uh, think about what you first liked about them, what turned you on, what drew you to them, what you liked in the beginning 20 years ago. And ironically, that might be the thing that drives you crazy now. That careless musician part of them might be the part that doesn't settle down today. Or maybe it's that meditator that won't sort of hang out with you and have a longer intellectual conversation. Or maybe that woman that you were super attracted to in the beginning because she was super physical, is now less emotional than you'd appreciate. Like a lot of times the thing that we love about someone is the thing that drives us crazy later on. My first husband, he was super grounded. Like he was a family guy. He loved just staying home and being with the kids and being with me. And I knew when I met him that he was never going to go anywhere. He was just always going to be with me. And that was really sexy to me because my father had left when I was young. And so that desire for him was just so great because he seemed so solid and grounded. And I was so hot for that. Plus, he wore a tool belt. And I thought that was really hot. And he was really sexy. <laughs> that, in the beginning, that attraction, that curiosity was really good. And then later on, he really never wanted to go anywhere, <laughs> never wanted to leave the house, never wanted to get on a plane, never wanted to go on vacation, never wanted to do a thing. So that drove me crazy. And sometimes that is the thing that can make or break a relationship. Sometimes it's the thing that makes you grow in a relationship. So thinking about the initial phase of your attraction, and then once you're attracted to that person, you make a decision, you continue to pursue them. Or you decide, okay, this was fun, but there's something about this person that's not going to work for me. You know, I was recently talking to my daughter about what happens in college. And this idea of getting played or getting ghosted is so much different than when I was growing up. Because after the first date or the first time you have sex with someone, if you feel like there's not a connection or you feel like it's just sex or it's not going to last or there's no desire there for more, it's just pure arousal, then you don't have to connect with that person. You can just ghost them or not text them or not call them. You can disappear. But in her world, you can stalk them on social media to see what they're doing. In my day, you just waited for people to call you. It's a different level of torture now, I think, for young people. And that usually happens after that first round of desire or attraction phase in a relationship. If you choose at that round to stay together because you realize it's more than just arousal, there is something there, the desire and arousal are both there, then you go into the next phase of the relationship, which is the attachment. In the attachment phase, you decide, okay, this is worth it. This is something that, you know, is really going to work for us. And we both want to be together and we both want to explore this. And we continue to ask each other questions and to figure out what this is like. And you go into what I call the sweatpants phase where you just like hang out. You loosen that notch on your belt. You can eat the third piece of pizza. You stop wearing makeup. Like it's really comfortable. And you feel like, oh, okay, now I can relax. Like I have this person. I don't have to keep seeking. You know, that seeking behavior can finally, like, let go, and you can be yourself. 
that's a really comfortable feeling. Like you can hang out, you can watch Netflix together. You don't have to be out there at the bars like looking. And that's a wonderful feeling because you feel like you can let each other know what you really want. And sex becomes super fun because you can stay in bed all weekend and explore and discover and connect and... It's a wonderful connecting time where you build that attachment and you build that discovery. And then that sort of slows down and goes into maintenance sex. Like, okay, this is good, but let's move on. Like, we're going to stay together. So you create safety in being attached. And you're like, okay, well, we're definitely staying together. And the next phase of our relationship is really for family. So whether you're gay, straight, whether you want kids, whether you don't want kids— You become each other's family. And the minute you commit to some kind of relationship that's forever, the minute you commit to saying, okay, we're going to stay together, we're going to commit to either getting married or moving in together, or it's implied that we're going to have some kind of monogamy agreement, or even if it's an open relationship, any kind of commitment where you decide we're going to be our primary partner to each other, almost to the second you regress and you regress to what you know of forever love. And forever love for most of us is our parents. Like even if you didn't have a great parental situation, you have an assumption that your parents are supposed to love you forever and it's unconditional. And really, this is a huge disappointing moment for most people because The reality is the moment you commit to forever and you expect unconditional love from your partner, you are disappointed. Because I'm going to tell you right now, marriage is not unconditional love. Only your family is supposed to give you unconditional love. Only your parents are supposed to love you unconditionally. Not your spouse, not your partner. Marriage is conditional. There's a lot of conditions. One, you have sex with me and you stay hot for me. You stay attractive for me. And you stay attracted to me, even if I stop wearing makeup and I'm a bitch to you and I parentify you and tell you to pick up your socks and treat you like a kid and the relationship becomes totally parentified, you should still be hot for me. So even if I don't treat you the same way I treated you when I met you, you should still love me. And I can treat you any way I want, you know, that's fine, but you should love me unconditionally. (laughs) I don't love you unconditionally. I have total conditions. One, you don't cheat on me. Two, you have sex with me all the time. Three, you don't spend all my money. Four, you pick up your socks. Five, you go on vacation with me. Six, you let me do whatever I want. Seven, you don't be so controlling unless we're in bed. Eight, I have a whole list and my husband knows them very well, so you could ask him the rest. Check out Uber Lube. You wouldn't believe all the uses for this lube. Not only does it feel amazingly silky and it hydrates your skin and it's not tacky, but you can use this lube not just for sex or sex with yourself, but you can use it on your hair and for sports. If you run marathons and you want to put on a sports bra, it prevents chafing. It's got this amazing multiple use. Plus, it comes in a clear glass bottle that's super discreet and luxuriously beautiful. If you want to order it today at uberlube.com, you can put in the promo code Dr. Tammy for 10% off. That's D-R-T-A-M-M-Y and get 10% off today. I'll give you this example, although my husband hates this example. You know, if my son robbed a bank, I would go to prison every day and visit him. I would bring him cookies. I would write him letters. I would love him. doesn't matter if he robbed a bank. If my husband robbed a bank, 
I would immediately seek divorce and our relationship would be over. <laughs> That's it. And so, because our relationship is not unconditional love. One of the conditions is you don't rob a bank. The reality of expecting unconditional love from a partner is a mistake. And one of the conditions of marriage or of a committed partnership is that you're going to have sex. And so the person who wants the least amount of sex kind of holds the relationship hostage. They have the most power. If you're in a sexless marriage, that's really unfair because you are also breaking your monogamy agreement, a monogamy agreement that says we're just going to have sex with each other for the rest of our lives is an assumption that says, okay, we're not going to have sex with anyone else. But there's also an assumption that we're going to have sex with each other. And it's not fair to tell your partner, well, you can't have sex with anyone else, but I'm not going to have sex with you either. I don't really feel like it. That's not fair. That's breaking your monogamy agreement as well. And for couples who go years and years and years without having sex but still stay monogamous, this is a betrayal. It's a betrayal just like infidelity. One of the problems of monogamy and of marriage today is that the assumption is we don't have to talk about it unless there's a crisis, and long-term, low-sex or no-sex marriages are not necessarily seen as a crisis. And so I'm here to tell you that it's time to wake up your marriage before it breaks up. Because the next phase of a relationship is where you fall asleep. You go into that safety place in order to create a family. Again, whether you have kids or not, you're safe in order to be family and safety is antithetical to eroticism. Eroticism, by its nature, is naughty, it's forbidden, it's illicit, you know, it's kind of bad. That's what makes it hot. You know, after you have really good sex, you should feel like a little embarrassed. You should be like, oh, my God, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I made that noise. I can't believe I, like, made that my partner do that. I can't believe I just had that threesome. I can't believe I, you know, whatever it is. I can't believe I had that fantasy. You should be a little embarrassed. That's the nature of eroticism. And it doesn't mean you have to be embarrassed every time. I mean, you can have maintenance sex, totally fine. Rollover sex on Tuesday, I'm all for it. But if you're really going to push your edge and keep things going, you have to be able to explore those forbidden places, even if it's in your mind. And it's really hard to do that when you're making macaroni and cheese for the kids you know, to try to go upstairs and put the garter belt on at the same time that night, it's really, really hard. It's hard to integrate your erotic self with your own self as being a parent, especially for women. Now, I know this is hard for men, but as a mother, we have a cultural expectation that you can't be a mother and a sexual object at the same time. It's a, a Madonna whore complex. So what happens is we tend to either shut down our sexuality while our kids and our family is young, and we say, okay, well, I'll deal with that later. I'll take it out when the kids grow up. Or we split off our sexuality outside of our relationship into porn or into sex workers or into an affair because that erotic part of us feels like it would taint the family or taint the goodness of the mother or you know, it's not that just that men do that to us or our husbands or our partners or our spouses, but we do that to ourselves. It's really hard. You know, in, in our culture, we have one archetype for women. It's Mary. It's the Virgin Mary and Mary Magdalene. 
Like, there's no coincidence that they're both named Mary. That's all you can be. You can be a whore or you can be a good girl and a mother. And yet there's so many other parts of women in other cultures. There's so many other archetypes for women. And it's a struggle. So during this phase of a relationship, a lot of times people do shut off their sexuality or it gets really confused and traumatized. And so to my listener who wrote this letter about being together for 20 years, the most common time that people come in to see me is 12 years and 20 years. So it's usually when people have been together for a while and their kids are young, usually around when the kids are around seven, they come in because the kids are now old enough to put themselves on the bus and tie their own shoes. And you remember that you're a sexual person. You remember that you miss each other. You remember that you want to have sex again. Couples will either wake up and say, we have to do something about this. We, I miss you. I miss sex. I miss the arousal that we used to have. I do desire sex. I do desire you. What do we do? Or they come in because one person had an affair or there's been some kind of trauma or they've been relying on pornography and masturbation and it can't go on. It just can't. So it's a wake up or break up moment where people come into therapy. You don't have to get to that place. You can look at each other and say, you know what, we got to make a change. We have to make a change because it's an illusion that people say, well, we've been married a long time. I guess sex just shuts off. That's not true. What it means is that there's two parts of your relationship. There's companionship and eroticism. The companionship is your roommate life. It's how you get along. It's how you raise the kids. It's how you clean the kitchen. It's how you walk the dog. It's how you order pizza. It's how you are friends. That's your companionship. And you might be great roommates, but the whole other part of your relationship is eroticism. And that erotic part of your life is something that doesn't just happen. You have to work on that as much, if not more, than your companionship. If you want to get the sex that you want, you have to put a lot of effort into that. Nobody tells you that. People say, well, you just have to work on your companionship and not argue and not go to bed mad. First of all, if I never went to bed mad, I'd never go to bed. I think that's stupid. The reality is passion and anger and frustration, all of that can be in bed with you. And bringing all of that into your relationship means you have to talk about things, yes, but you're never going to resolve things. When you've been together for 20 years, you're not going to resolve every resentment and every argument you've ever had. And you still have to work on your erotic life separately from all of those resentments in your companionship. I have a letter from another reader who says, Dear Dr. Tammy, I'm in a relationship where my wife won't have sex with me, but she won't let me have sex with anyone else. And she walked in on me masturbating to porn, and now she feels like I've cheated on her. What next? Thanks, listener. And I love that you wrote this letter. Thanks so much for sharing. I think this goes to uh, some of the points that I was talking about earlier and is so important. Number one, if you haven't had sex for a long time and you feel like you have desire but your partner doesn't, sometimes masturbating to porn can actually be a favor to the lower desire partner. So if you have low desire and your partner has higher desire, then if you, why shouldn't your partner masturbate? Then it takes away the pressure to the low desire partner. So... You know, I have one couple that I see in therapy where he wants sex six or seven times a week. It's a heterosexual couple. 
And she wants sex maybe once every two weeks. And so they have an agreement, an explicit agreement, where they have sex maybe once or twice every couple of weeks. And on the other times where he really desires more, he looks at pornography and masturbates. Now, he says it's not totally satisfying for him. And she's not totally crazy about it either, but she has a really exhausting job where she works about 20 hours a day every two days and then crashes. So for her, trying to get her schedule under control and her hormones, which uh, she's struggling with, it works for her and her health until she can change her lifestyle. And for them, their agreement is temporary, but it's how they're working on their erotic life. One of the ways to work on your erotic life is to talk about your monogamy agreement. What have you decided works for both of you? It's when you don't talk about it that I feel like you are at risk of holding each other hostage to the implicit assumptions that you're making about your sex life. So the implicit assumption that you won't look at porn after we get married is an assumption around your monogamy agreement because it's an assumption around your sexuality. So it's not necessarily about the pornography. It's about the masturbation. So in other words, if you walk in on someone masturbating to porn, is it that you're upset about what they're looking at? Which it might be. Or is it upset that they're masturbating and having a sexual experience without you? It might be. Is it both? What's happening? I have another couple that I see in therapy. They've given me permission to write about them and talk about them. They've been working really, really hard on this issue of low desire. And they initially came in because she had, it's a heterosexual couple. They've worked through a lot of their monogamy stuff. And I'll tell you how they did it. But she walked in on him uh, masturbating to porn in a similar situation. She had been totally not into sex since, since her second child was born. And she said, you know, I feel like you're cheating on me by doing this. I can't believe you're doing this. I thought when we got married, this would stop. And he said, I don't know what you're talking about. I've been doing this since I was 10. And this has nothing to do with you. This is my private life. And she said, you know, I feel like this is a secret. You haven't told me about this. Therefore, it's really a betrayal. She said, you know, I thought my implicit assumption, she worked through this in therapy, was that, you know, after we got married, I was going to be the only one that was going to touch your penis. <laughs> and frankly, I don't feel like touching your penis, so <laughs> no one's going to touch your penis. And he was like, wait a minute, this is my body. This is my penis. This is my pleasure. And masturbation is mine. I, I'm i in charge of my own domain here. And so they had a long conversation about what the implicit assumptions were. Like, are you going to tell me every time I masturbate in the shower? Or like, isn't this privacy? What is privacy versus secrecy? What is being monogamous? What does it mean to each of you? Can you have this conversation? In my book, The New Monogamy, I talk about what it means to have this agreement explicitly. Like, what is it that you need to talk about? Maybe you need to agree that you don't talk about any of it. And that's your agreement. But the idea that you would explicitly agree to a monogamy agreement where you would be faithful to each other sexually for the rest of your lives and then not have sex 
is a betrayal of your monogamy agreement, and it needs to be talked about. Now, that doesn't mean that it gives you the right to pressure your partner into having sex if they're not into it. So if your partner's not into having sex with you, I would ask, why don't they want to come to the party? Like, what is it about the party that is not fun? And why don't they want to come to it? Like, you can't expect if you're the partner that your partner doesn't want to have sex with that it's their fault. Like, maybe you could do something to make it a more fun party. That's another thing that we can t- either talk about in therapy or you can work on with your partner. Ask them what would be more pleasurable for them and make it more worthwhile for them to want to have sex. What is it going to take to help them become more aroused and feel more desire? Working on your erotic life means talking about your desires, talking about fantasy. So I'm going to give you a tip. This is my hot tip for today's episode. You never change your sex life by saying, I hate it when you go to the left. You always change your sex life by saying, I love it when you go to the right. So in other words, criticizing your partner, complaining, pointing out what you're not getting enough of or what's not going well never, ever works. You know, the secret is always appreciating what does work and sharing about what you want more of. So the beginning of that experience would be Sharing with your partner one thing that I really like that we do in bed that I would like more of would be, and then share with them something that you liked in the past. Remember that initial phase of your relationship, something that was hot for you, something that turned you on. Maybe you did it once 20 years ago. You know, something I really liked that we did 20 years ago. Remember when we used to take showers together? I really like that. I'd like to do more of that. Or remember when you used to tie me up with silk scarves? Remember we did that once on our honeymoon? I really like that. I want more of that. Or remember when you used to kiss me more slowly? I really like that. Like anything that you can think of that really worked for you that you would like more of, can you share that with your partner? You always get more of what you appreciate. So sharing what works for you and what you would like more of. Instead of saying, I just want more sex, that comes off as a criticism, like you're not giving me enough. So be specific. Think of something in the most specific, precise, measured, uh, time-restricted way. You know, I liked when we did it that one time when we took a 20-minute shower when you gave me that massage and it was like a lasted a half hour when you brought home that massage oil that was so nice. You know, think about what really is pleasurable to you and what really feels like it gave you a moment of arousal and desire. The other thing that really works, and I'm going to give you a, a bonus tip, is to create a sex date once a week. Creating a sex date once a week You don't have to have intercourse. You don't even have to have sex. But you do have to meet once a week in order to remember that you're more than just companions, that you do have an erotic life. That's probably why you got together in the first place, not because you liked the way your partner cleaned the kitchen or because you're good roommates. You could probably get a better roommate. But because you were attracted to that person for erotic reasons, for romantic reasons, this is your romantic partner. And so how can you recreate once a week, even if it's only for a few moments, that moment of attraction by creating a sacred space where you meet once a week 
light a candle, meet in the bedroom, maybe just hold each other or hug each other, or give each other massage and remember your erotic life. So all the other hours of the week can be for your companionship, but this moment is for your erotic life. And if you want more details on how to make that work, if you haven't had sex for a year or longer, you're not going to just have a date night, have an erotic night, and jump back into intercourse. It's not going to happen. I can give you more details about how to make that work if you write to me at drtammy at thetroublewithsex.com, drtammy at thetroublewithsex.com. Until next time. To find out more, go to thetroublewithsex.com or email me at drtammy at thetroublewithsex.com. Join our mailing list, follow us on social media, sign up for our newsletter, or send me a question. The Trouble with Sex is produced by Brandy Savitt and Jane Applegate. Our audio is by Flavor Lab, New York City. Our L.A. studio engineer is Aaron Steinberg. This episode was mixed by Eric Stern with music by Bruce Hirschfield. Hirschfield.